I um, really quick. I just have one uh, update announcement for us this morning. We, as you, uh, if you've been around, you, you've been keeping up with this. But we moved our our food pantry, our our vibrant food pantry that we do downtown on Main Street. We moved all of that uh, last weekend up to the upstairs portion of our building, which was awesome. So we're going to have kind of a an open house, if you will, right after the service that you're encouraged to be a part of, to go look at it and get your eyes upon that and see how we're thinking about um, orchestrating that whole ministry. And we're really excited for that. And so if you want to go upstairs after the service between 12 and 1, you can kind of walk around and see things and and get a look at like what it's going to look like. Because here's the reality. One, we just want you to be aware of it. We want you to pray over it. Um, we're obviously, for us, one of the core values of our church is renewal. And the way we're trying to practice that in this particular time is by helping those in our community, practically speaking, those um, that are um, disadvantaged, struggling. And so we do that through our care portal ministry with the kids in the school district, but we also do that through our food pantry it's pretty wild if you haven't ever seen what takes place on Tuesdays and Thursday nights. So I would encourage you, we're looking for participation in that. We, and I say this uh, every once in a while when I'm up here to talk about it, but it, it's such a part of your discipleship. This isn't just simply trying to help folks that are struggling financially or for basic needs in our community. This is, this is a part of very much a part of your discipleship. I just think apart from seeing those that have less, much, much less, and apart from you seeing them, caring for them, putting your hands to some of those problems, I don't know if you can be fully formed in Christ. And so, you know, I just think it's, it's important that we don't miss that opportunity. And so we're trying to actually bring that closer to you. It's like it was when it was down on Main Street, you could, it could kind of, we could stay insulated from some of that. And so the idea is, well, let's just put it right in our face yeah. uh, so that we can't miss it. And so that we actually have to be a part of it. So I would encourage you to go upstairs, pray over it. That ministry that's getting ready to launch upstairs, we're really excited for that. Sign up, get involved. You can serve once a month or however it works out for you um, and, and be a part of that. So just do that. Take that time. Take five minutes, 10 minutes after the service, whatever it is, to go up, walk around and, and see. And you can, come, you can come peek around in all the offices if that's your thing, too. So... All right, um, now shifting gears, I'm not preaching today. It is with great honor and privilege that I get to introduce a guest preacher, um, Pastor Kevin Jameson. Um, he's coming to preach for us this morning. I, 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 uh, I can't believe I actually feel like I have to introduce him. Strange. The reason I'm saying that, if you're new, is I don't think Kev's been up here for at least a year, but um, Pastor Kevin is actually the planting pastor of the Oaks. So in case if you've only been here for a short amount of time, it is not me. And not what I did. I'm not a planter. I water things that are already planted. So, uh, <laughs> but he actually, um, through God's help, he was bold enough, crazy enough. I, I said once to him, to his face, you are really dumb for thinking that you could plant a church. And by God's grace, you pulled it off. Um, and so, and then five years into that journey, God called him out. And now he is a pastor at Sojourn Community Church in Louisville, Kentucky. I love Kevin deeply. With all my heart, he's, um, for many, many reasons, um, w- one of them is, he's uh, a faithful friend to me, so um, I consult him on a number of issues, whether they're theological or just practical pastoral issues. Any decision that you deeply disagree with, they are his fault. <laughs> I consulted him first. 
And I said, I have got, I've got a fork in the road. Which one should I choose? And he'll say, this one, take this one. And I go that way when people get mad at me. I, I say, Kevin, no. But um, he is faithful friend to me. Um, we talk ministry. We talk scripture. We talk Jesus. We talk life. Um, he is, um, I, I love Kevin because he thinks deeply about problems, like problems that are, the world is facing, problems that the church is facing. Um, he thinks deeply about problems that um, we're trying to figure out as pastors, what does it mean for people to be disciples to Jesus, like authentically in this particular time? And he just thinks deeply about that, cares deeply about that. He pastors, a, a really, numerically speaking, a really big church. And I love the fact that he just doesn't, he cares for his church, but he doesn't care about that part. He's just not caught up in that, and, and I love that about him. He stays emotionally and spiritually stable in that, in that realm. Um, he's faithful to his family. He's faithful to his church. Um, he's faithful to Jesus. He's faithful to all of those things. And so uh, he, because of that, um, he always has a seat at our table here, um, always. And so um, we're, I, I, just, I want you to please pray for him. I want you to uh, pray for his church, which we'll do here in a second as he comes up. Pray for them because um, we love them. Sojourn East, we, we, we deeply love them. They're very much like you, just down in Louisville, Kentucky, with a lot more restaurants. And so um, <laughs> it's just easier to follow Jesus there, isn't it? <laughs> uh, so anyway, what we do, we want you to pray for them, and we want you to pray for him and pray for his family um, at their visit here. So if you could, please join me. And praying. Uh, Father, we give you thanks, and we love you, and we love the fellowship um, that you create. I, I know, and these brothers and sisters in this room, I'm sure can think and feel this way too, Lord, but we have relationships. We have brothers and sisters, deep friendships that have been created because of your uh, divine creative work. And I love Kevin, and I love his wife, and I love his kids, and I love the fact that you did that. You made that happen, and we are thankful for the relationship there. We're thankful for uh, Sojourn East and the the ministry, the opportunities that they have. God, I want to see your power move in their church. I want to see you bring a spirit of confession and repentance to their church so that they see you move. Make them a light in that community there in Louisville. Make them salt. Um, make them a presence of Eden, a presence of rest in a world um, that desperately needs it. And so we, we ask that you can do it because you can do all things. And so we lay that at your feet and we um, lift up those people and we lift up our work here as well in Middletown. We give you thanks uh, for faithful people like Kevin and like the uh, other brothers and sisters that serve alongside him in, in, in their church. And so um, thank you so much for making that happen. We love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Matt. Well, peace be with you. It really is a joy to be here. Uh, Matt and I were having lunch at one of the great restaurants down the street from my house uh, a couple weeks ago, and asked him what he was preaching on and what series he was in this fall. And he told me the series, Problems in the Church, and I begged him to let me come and preach. Because having pastored for 15 years, I've got a few things to say about problems in the church. I've got to see a lot. Um, And, you know, the church, when she's at her best, she's powerful and beautiful and 
captures your imagination and stirs things within you. But the church, when she's at her worst, it's pathetic and discouraging. And she makes you kind of want to turn and run in the opposite direction away from her. And so I think wisdom requires us to be able to talk openly about what are the problems that face the church. Some of the problems we're facing today um, are obvious, and they've been in the water for a long time. Um, Abuses of power, sexual abuse, racism, sexism. Some of the problems we're facing are newer ones that the church hasn't had to deal with so much throughout the years, like celebrity, which Pastor Matt preached on a couple weeks ago. But some of the problems we're facing, they're perennial problems. They're problems that are as old as time, as old as the church. David Foster Wallace, he's a, he was a famous writer. He died a few years back, but he gave this really famous commencement speech at Kenyon College in 2005. <clears throat> and in that speech, he told this story about these two fish, young fish that were swimming along, uh, just going throughout their day, and an older fish swam by. And the older fish said, hey, hey, fellas, hey, boys, how's the water? And the younger fish kind of looked at him and nodded and smiled and said, hey. And then the old fish swam away, and once he got out of earshot, one of the young fish looked over to the other and said, what in the world is water? And Wallace goes on to explain that the point of that story is that the most obvious, ubiquitous, important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see and the hardest to talk about. And the problems that face the church, there are some that are just obvious and easy. And then there are other problems that we're facing that are like water, that we don't even notice it. They've become so commonplace so ordinary, so just part of how we live and operate that we can't even see them for what they are. And so this morning, I want to talk about, I think, one of the most fundamental problems that has faced the church since it began. And I want to do it by looking at one of my favorite stories in the scriptures. It's a story about ancient astrologers, a murderous king, some incredible dramatic displays in the cosmos, and pathetic religious people um, all in one. It's a story of the Magi, um, a story that we're all familiar with, but we're not familiar with it at the same time because it's a strange story. And normally when we look at this story, it's in the season of Advent. And in the season of Advent, we're all sentimental and we just kind of want to get through whatever the story is so that we can remain in that Christmas spirit. And we miss the strangeness and the wonder and the meaning of this incredible story that Matthew included right at the very beginning of his gospel. And so if you want to follow along with me, you can. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. And what I want to do is we're going to walk through the story pretty briefly, and then we're going to talk about some of what we see here. And what what we see, the problems we see in this text that carry over into our day. But starting in verse 1, Matthew sets the scene for us. He says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, for Matthew's original readers to hear the name Herod, that would stir emotions within them. 
Think of the politician you hate the most and put that politician's name in here. That's what it would be like for them because Herod loomed large over the people of God in this day. He was called Herod the Great. He was appointed king of Judea by the Roman Senate in 30 BC. He was given the title, actually, King of the Jews, and the faithful Jewish people hated him for that because he wasn't Jewish. And what we know of him is he was what we would call today a malignant predatory narcissist who was dedicated to building his own name and his own fame regardless of the cost. In his later years, he became a very violent man, which is when this story takes place. He killed one of his wives and at least two of his sons because he thought they were conspiring against them. So when Matthew tells us that after Jesus was born in the days of Herod the king that's supposed to stir something in the people of God, the sense of God has come, but the world is not right, and Herod is still ruling. And then Matthew talks about this, these other characters, the wise men from the east. And the wise men from the east, that phrase alone, that would stir images and emotions among the original readers. Because there is this mystery that surrounds the wise men from the east, the Magi. They most likely came from Persia or Babylon, which is in modern-day Iraq or Iran. They were astrologers. They studied the stars to discern the times. They would interpret the dreams. They would predict the future. And sometimes, as their name uh, suggests, they would practice magic. And so in their home country in the east, the mysterious east back then, these men were treated uh, with great respect. They were men of power, prominence, and influence. They served in the court of kings. And so if you can just let yourself imagine, Matthew's telling the story after Jesus was born, boom, Herod, the megalomaniac, violent king, and then these strange, mysterious magi from the east. Verse 2, Matthew tells us that the magi came to Jerusalem with a question saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. So these guys, they saw a star in the sky, and they set out for Jerusalem. And setting out for Jerusalem is not like setting out for Middletown from Louisville. It's not like 100 miles. It's more like a 1,000 miles journey. And so it's pretty interesting. These guys are studying the stars. They see something, and they're like, let's go on the journey of a lifetime to Jerusalem. We have to do a little guesswork about how they knew. We do know that there was a large Jewish community living in Babylon in the first century who'd been there since exile and that they had become part of the culture. The Magi probably had access to their texts. They talked. Um, They probably knew some of the, the promises that the Jewish people were clinging to, like Numbers 24, which says that a star will come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. We don't know exactly, but the Magi, they're studying the stars. They see this astrological event in the sky. It's over Jerusalem. And they say, I think it's time. I think the king of the Jews has been born. I think the promises are being fulfilled. Load up the caravan. 
kiss your wives and your babies. Let's get there and go see this king. Well, word gets to Herod, as it obviously would, when these magi, men that no one in Jerusalem had probably ever seen before, when they roll into town and they start inquiring about a child who had been born, when they start, Herod, who was known as the king of the Jews, when these magi come and say, hey, we heard that the king of the Jews has been born. You can imagine what he was thinking. And so in verse 3, we're told that when Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So Herod feels his power and his influence is being threatened. So he calls all of the leaders for a little council, and he says, hey, we've got these strange guys from Iraq here, and they're asking about the king of the Jews and where he's supposed to be born. I don't know your scriptures, but can you tell me where, where is this supposed Messiah, the key of David, the Emmanuel that's supposed to come? Where is he going to be born? Now, this was an easy question for the chief priests and the scribes because they knew their Hebrew Bible by heart. And they told him, well, of course, it's in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring him to me, that I may come and worship him. Yeah, right. (laughs) So he says, hey, you're close, Jerusalem. He's actually going to be born in Bethlehem. That's where he will be found. That's about a six-mile jaunt down the street. When you hear and find him, tell him to come and I want to worship him. And so after listening to the king, wrapping the story up, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went over them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And in going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream, not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. It's the end of the story of the Magi, and I love that story. Um, I love it even more when you keep it in the context that Matthew probably spent about 30 years writing his gospel, 30 years researching, talking with people, editing, re-editing it. What stories do we include? What stories don't we include? We know that John, he said, if we tried to include all the stories there were about Jesus, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to hold all of those stories. So Matthew is very selective when you think about it. You might think the Gospels are long, but really they're pretty short. And everything that he includes in his Gospel, he is including for a reason. It's to teach us something. There's a message embedded in it all. And so why does he keep this story? Well, it happened, yes. 
But I think there's a message embedded in here, a problem that's being exposed here that is exposed again and again throughout Matthew's gospel and throughout the pages of church history. And it's, I didn't notice it at first, and so if you didn't notice that you're normal, um, but after sitting with the text for a while, one of the things that really jumped out to me is how the chief priests and the scribes, this is like the senior pastors, the bishops, the seminary professors, and the seminary presidents of that day, how they respond to the announcement of Christ's birth. Herod comes to these men and says, apparently, your Messiah's been born. That's what these guys are saying. Apparently, the long-awaited one is here. Where would I go to find them? And they respond, oh, that's easy. It's Bethlehem. Like, we know exactly where he's going to be born. And it's not surprising that they know. These guys ace their sword drills in Sunday school, if any of you did that. They got all of the stars and ribbons in the Awana class. They like got through seminary, graduated magna cum laude. It's not surprising that they know the answer. What's surprising is when they hear that God's long-awaited Messiah has come, they don't fall to their knees. And they don't shout and rejoice. And they don't saddle up their donkeys to make the six-mile journey. Instead... They just say, oh yeah, it's supposed to happen somewhere over there. And then they went back to doing whatever it was that they were doing. What's surprising is they couldn't even be bothered to make the six-mile journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to investigate these claims. You see, they, they had some measure of faith, but it was a lifeless faith. Did they believe in God? Yeah, I think so. Did that belief actually engage them in the world, in the present, here and now, to seek God's face? No. Did they have right beliefs? You betcha. I mean, these were the orthodoxy police. These were the guys who would argue over the finest points of the law. They, they were orthodox, but their orthodoxy was dead. David Martin Lloyd-Jones says that church history throughout the ages shows that of all the dangers facing the church, dead orthodoxy is the greatest. Dead orthodoxy is when we have the right beliefs, but we stop recognizing and living as if God is actually alive. And I want to draw out kind of three, three of the markers of dead orthodoxy we see in this passage and then I want to try to bring it home with a, a word of great encouragement to you. Um, number one, what we see here is that dead orthodoxy emerges when we settle for knowing about God rather than knowing God. Dead orthodoxy emerges when we settle for learning about God as if some, someone might learn about trees or about rocks as opposed to knowing God. You know, we, we live in such interesting times. How many of you have ever stalked someone on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter? Anyone? Yeah, a few of you are willing to raise your hands. The rest of you are like, 
If I told you, it wouldn't be stalking. Um, How many of you ever watched reality TV shows, read US Weekly, maybe click through TMZ on your computer? Like we live in this interesting hyper-connected age, which has led us to think that it's really normal to peer into the lives of people that we don't know at all. We think it's absolutely normal to like know what kind of bathing suit someone that we've never met wore to the beach and then make judgments on them for that. That's strange. It's normal to us. But for most of human history, we would say that's a really strange thing that you do. But what happens is as we, we peer into people's lives, we learn things about them, we gain a sense of familiarity about them, and we start to think that we know them. But we don't know them. You know, the greatest, maybe the greatest, my mom's in the room and my brother, so no competition here, but I think maybe the greatest uh, birthday present I ever got was my senior year of high school. My brother got me tickets to see Jerry Seinfeld live in person at the Taft. And we, we weren't very religious in our home growing up, but we were very religious about watching Seinfeld. And so <laughs> we had seen every episode. I mean, it was like, we're going to see Seinfeld. And we go to the Taft, and we had really good seats. And I'll never forget that moment when Jerry Seinfeld walked onto the stage and how surreal it was. Because, you know, I'd spent hundreds of hours with him in front of the TV. But now here he was, live and in person. And this is part of why Seinfeld is brilliant and he's one of the best ever. Is he knows what we're all feeling in that moment. And he actually just named it. He said, this is really strange for you, isn't it? He said, the little man who's lived inside the box in your house is now standing before you in flesh and blood. And he kind of draws it on and on, and he said, here's what's really strange, is you think you know me. If you saw me afterwards, you'd come and you'd talk to me like we're old friends. And then Jerry just, killer, he's like, but none you don't know me at all. You don't know the first thing about me. You've just watched my show. Now there everyone's laughing. But here, I think we're seeing the connection, aren't we? It's like it's one thing to know some things about a person, a subject, or God. It's another to actually know them. And so often, the indictment the prophets or even Jesus give against the religious folks of his day are, are you worship me, but your hearts are far from me. You acknowledge me, but you don't actually know me. John 5, you know, it's one of the most striking where Jesus says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Dead orthodoxy emerges when we settle for knowing about God rather than knowing God. Second thing we see, dead orthodoxy replaces a spirit of expectancy with a spirit of complacency. 
See, when we settle for knowing some things about God instead of truly seeking God's face, then God ceases to be real in our hearts and real in reality. He becomes an object that we study and our faith becomes something that's little more than a philosophy for life instead of an active, dynamic relationship with the all-powerful living God. And when that happens, we lose any sense of expectancy that God might show up and do something surprising, that he might reach out his hand in power and answer prayers. That's why we become, over time, many of us, our prayer lives diminish. Because we don't have a sense of expectancy, we have a sense of complacency. Like the world, we'll say we acknowledge that God exists, but the world is really just... You know, it's a top that was wound up and now it's spinning and there's not much that anyone or anything can do to change things. It's functional atheism. And it believes that God isn't at work. And this is why these men who hear the greatest promise God ever made was being fulfilled in their day, these chief priests and scribes, all of the promises were leading to this day. Yet they couldn't even be bothered to put on their sandals and go for a six-mile journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to investigate. They didn't have the faith or the holy imagination to believe that God might move in their day. And in the end, they missed their long-awaited king who was curled up in his mama's lap just down the road. See, these, these men, they had ba- great biblical literacy, but they knew nothing of biblical longing. And biblical literacy without biblical longing ain't going to get you anywhere. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, he wrote about this years ago. He was a pastor in England, and he described this spiritual complacency. He says, we go to God's house, Not with the idea of meeting with God, not with the idea of waiting upon him. It never crosses our mind that something may happen. The idea that God may suddenly visit his people and descend upon him, the whole thrill of being in the presence of God and sensing his nearness and his power, it never even enters our imaginations. We must examine ourselves. How often does this vital idea enter into our minds that we are in the presence of the living God, that the Holy Spirit is in the church, and that we may actually feel the touch of his power? Is there not this appalling danger that we are just content because we have correct beliefs? We expect nothing, we get nothing, and nothing happens to us. You know, I I like to just imagine in my minds the chief priests and the scribes after this day. Imagine them, you know, when they're having community group or an accountability. It's like, I just don't feel like God's really all that present. I just, God feels so far right now. It's like, are you kidding me? Like he is literally in the flesh six miles down the road. He's right there. But you don't, you don't have the imagination, the sense of expectancy, the faith to even go see him. And so in your mind, well, God's just far. Who knows what he's up to? He's right. He's sleeping, I think. <laughs> but he's right down the road. 
So dead orthodoxy, it, it, rep- it replaces knowing God with just knowing about God. It replaces a spirit of expectancy with a spirit of complacency. And then the last one, which I think is the most damning, dead orthodoxy, you know dead orthodoxy uh, has taken root among God's people when they exchange a longing for power from on high for a lust for power on this earth. One of the sure undeniable signs that this problem of dead orthodoxy has taken root is instead of seeking power from on high from God, God's people start to look to grab power here on this earth. Where do we see this? Well, verse 3, it says, When Herod the king heard that the Magi were here to visit the king of the Jews who'd been born, we're told that he was troubled, and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. Now, it's obvious why Herod was troubled at this news. Because, like I said, you know, he was a megalomaniac. He was a narcissist. All he cared about was himself. But why was Jerusalem troubled along with him? Well, some of it was certainly that they knew how paranoid and violent Herod could be, and they were afraid that this news might set him off. And so they're kind of tiptoeing around like a poor child who's being raised by an alcoholic father who anything could just kind of set them off. Some of it's that, but there's more to it, especially when you study the history. Because when you study the history, you actually see that many of the people of Jerusalem, they had gotten used to Herod's rule, and some of them, called the Herodians, they actually advocated that they should submit to the Herod's rule for the sake of political expediency. Not only just submit to him, they should align themselves with him. And so those people, those religious leaders who are saying, Herod, he's actually a pretty good guy, I mean, we believe some things differently, but he can get us where we want to go. Those people rose to power and prominence. Um, their social standing increased. They started making some serious money because of those connections. All of it was tied to Herod. And so when news of God's promised king being born starts to spread throughout the city, it's not just Herod that's troubled. It's all of these people who've built their lives on their relationship with Herod being king that are troubled. You guys tracking with me on that? Like it's their connections, it's their money, it's their place. Like they're going to have to cancel (laughs) their membership in the country club. They're not going to be able to eat at the restaurants that they used to eat if Herod's no longer in power. They might even have to like downsize their home or sell the car, like all of the things. And so when they hear that the king of the Jews has been born, these people aren't like, oh my gosh, God is coming through on his promises. They're like, man, I've got three more months until I pay off this donkey and then like we're going to be debt free and loving it. I can't. Like they're so caught up in the moment that they can't even rejoice. I mean, instead of longing and praying for God to move, these people were lobbying Herod to show them favor. And they'd so align themselves with him that they'd rather maintain the status quo and retain some worldly power instead of encountering the all-powerful living God in the flesh. 
I think a sure sign of dead orthodoxy is when God's people are more passionate about grabbing for power in this world than they are about receiving power from on high. And we see people grabbing for power in a few ways. One is money. Like when we think money really is going to solve all of our problems. The other, and this is a third rail, but I get to go home after this, so. Uh, <laughs> it's our politics, isn't it? I mean, it's our, it's our obsession with politics. And politics matter, you know. As they say, vote early, vote often. I'm all for it. Uh, but something's gone really wrong in the church of the living God when we start to think that our greatest problems, I mean, we won't say it, but we act like it and we live like it, that our greatest problems are going to be solved through politics, through worldly power. And that's, that's not a sign of a living faith. That's actually a sign of a pretty dead faith. Well, God's out to lunch. We better solve all of these problems on our own. And we give the best of who we are, the best of our minds, the best of our attention, the best of our money, the best of our energy, the best of our conversations to obsessing over worldly leaders and worldly politics who who are going to go the way of all men. You know, in Isaiah it says that Compared to God, the nations are like dust on a scale. Hardly measurable. Dead orthodoxy. You know it's taken root when we think that the answer to our problems is more power on earth and not power from God. And I want to say, some of you here are exploring Christianity and all of the things I just described are how you understand Christianity. People who seem religious, who claim to believe in an almighty God, but they're complacent. There's no warmth. There's nothing in them that, that reflects the sense that they actually know the living God. And there is a continual grasping after power. And I would say, if that's your experience, that's certainly a form of religion, but that is not the faith that's been handed down to us in Christ. That's like having a form of godliness but denying its power, as the New Testament says. Now, what I love, and I think this is what Matthew was going for, in contrast to the dead orthodoxy of the religious leaders, stands the faith of the Magi. So you've got the religious leaders who are grumpy old men, who don't want to leave their homes. And then you've got these weird dudes from Iraq. And the more you think about them, the more amazing it is. They, they had scraps of the Old Testament. They had heard rumors about a Messiah that they didn't even know exactly what the Messiah was going to be. And they see something happen in the stars, and they say, you know what, I think this might be it. And even if it's not, it's still worth investigating. Let's get the caravans together and get on the road and go see what God is doing. <laughs> That's incredible to me. They make this thousand-mile journey, which is unbelievably costly. It's dangerous. It's uncomfortable. They get to Jerusalem. They start asking around. 
they don't even have the wisdom to recognize how dangerous of a question it is to say, hey, where's the one who's born king of the Jews when Herod's claiming that that's who he is? When they hear that it's Bethlehem, they go, they find him, they give their greatest of treasures to him. We're told that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They bow down, they worship him. I've been around a lot of toddlers. We have five kids. I love toddlers, but I've never been tempted to bow down and worship them. But the Magi show up and they see and they know and they have a heart of faith that leads them to bow down and worship this child. I don't know if there's a greater display of faith in the entire Bible than these Magi. And I think it should tell us something that the first worshipers of Jesus in Matthew's gospel are fortune-telling, tarot card-reading magicians from Iraq. Who are the first Christians? These really weird guys. See, Matthew's showing us something here. It's not your heritage. It's not your pedigree. It's not your knowledge or your expertise. It's not how you were born or where you were born. It's not if you went to church as a kid that determines whether you have a relationship with the living God. What matters is do you have a hunger for God? Because the Magi, they didn't have much, but they had a hunger, and they went and sought God out of that hunger. They sought him by faith, and God honored their faith. You see, the good news of the gospel, the good news of the table that we're going to celebrate in just a couple of minutes is that it's all free. Like we don't bring anything in exchange. All we've got to bring is a hunger for God and God gives himself freely to us. We don't have to clean up our lives, get our acts together. We can just come, but we have to come hungry. And I think the challenge for many of us is when we came to faith, this isn't all of us, but I guess it's a lot of us, we were really hungry. And then we come to faith and we start going to church, which is good and important. And then we start gaining additional responsibilities and spiritual responsibilities. Uh, We have a lot of things to do. And then we start talking and learning about big, weighty, holy things, and we talk about them on a regular basis, and we grow numb to them, like just the teaching of Scripture that God's Spirit dwells among us and dwells within us. That's incredible. And it's something we can talk about and yawn over because there's just such a familiarity to it. And this is one of the real challenges of the Christian life. It's easy for us to lose our hunger and lose our passion. And truths that once exploded in our hearts and transformed our lives, they can easily grow dull. And before we know it, our faith can more closely resemble the religious leaders in Jerusalem than the living faith of the Magi. We easily slide from that living faith to a fairly lifeless religion. 
J.C. Ryle, he was an old preacher. Some of his sermons were real fire and brimstone, but I love this quote. He said, there is only too much truth in the old proverb, the nearer the church, the further from God. Familiarity with sacred things has a dreadful tendency to make men despise them. I want to say a couple of things here. Thank God, number one, that our salvation doesn't depend upon our passion. Can I get an amen from anyone? (laughs) Thank God that God doesn't save me by how amped up I am for him all of the time. Or else heaven would be full of a bunch of 19-year-olds and like the rest of us would be totally excluded. Like, praise God for that. And I do think that over the life of faith, like our passion, it's going to take different forms. It's going to take different shapes. But I thank God that we're saved by faith, not by the excitement of our faith. But I also, the invitation I want to put before you is that I don't, wherever you are, I don't want you to grow content with just going through the motions. I don't want you to believe the lie that God's really at work someplace else. Like God is at work here now. He's at work in your life. I think I'm going to say some things that, again, I get to leave. Um, but I, I talk with Matt about this, and sometimes I think Middletown, it's kind of like the forgotten city. You know, it's not as cool as other places. And I think the people think, man, well, God, God, or at least the developers are really at work in other parts of the area, but, but is God at work here? And I can tell you, like, I live in Louisville. There's a lot about Louisville that's cool. I live in the shadow of one of the biggest seminaries in the world. And there are parts of the seminary that are really awesome. And then there's a whole bunch of it that's just really awful because it's this stuff that's rampant. C.S. Lewis once said, of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. And I can tell you, having lived for 11 years in the shadow of the seminary, that is very true. And so I don't want you to think, well, God was more at work 20 years ago, or he's more at work geographically somewhere else. Like God is present here and now. He's present in this church. And God is constantly putting invitations before his people. All of the time, he's putting invitations before us. Invitations to grow, invitations to trust, invitations to sacrifice, invitations to deepen in our love for him. And so I don't know what invitation he's putting before you, but I have three really quickly that I'll put before you and that maybe the Spirit will stir one of these in your heart. For some of you, I think he's putting an invitation to repentance. That you've been living in unchecked sin for a long time. And that's probably part of the reason your, your faith is growing cold. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to pray the the prayer of David. Create me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit in me. Some of you, it's not some blatant sin, but it's just kind of just such a going through the motions. I want to encourage you for this week just to commit. Every morning, noon, night, you determine it. But it's a prayer of renewal. Restore the joy of your salvation to me. Sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. And some, some of you, you're like, amen. This whole sermon, you're like, I am right there with you. 
well, then you need to be the tip of the spear for the church here. And the way you be the tip of the spear is through prayer. And I love this verse from Habakkuk. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. And our time make them known. And wrath, remember mercy. I spend a lot of time praying and hoping because when I look at the world and the problems we're facing, they're insurmountable from a worldly perspective. Where our culture's going, everything, it's just so much. But I also know that God can stretch out his hand, and when he does throughout history, he brings down mountains, he moves mountains. And so the most important thing for us is not we've got to fix everything, we just got to stay close to him and plead with him. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's going to be broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood, which is going to be shed for you. And he encouraged us as his people to take part in this meal as often as we gather. And I think the centrality of this meal in the Christian life, I know churches debate, should we do it once a week or once a month? Paul says, as often as you gather, which I think, I think that's really important because I think Paul knew and I think Jesus knew that we're so, we're so quick to forget that we're saved by grace. That to just slide into being saved by works that Jesus is like, you know what? How about every time you guys get together, you actually take a loaf of bread and you break it and you're reminded that my body was broken for you. And then you take the cup and be reminded that my blood was shed for you. So that you not be tempted to think that the answer is to try harder or to do gooder. Instead, the answer is to draw near to the throne of grace. And so, uh, I encourage you, if you're a believer in Christ, to feast on Christ's body and blood that was broken and shed for you. And to seek him as he may be found. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal but you take part in Jesus Christ who gave his life for us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the faith of the Magi. We thank you that in your word, you give us the most unlikely of heroes and role models. I pray, Lord, I know you put invitations before us. I pray that we would have the courage to respond, to listen to respond, and to step out in faith. And we ask that you would stretch out your hands and do a mighty work among us. But we also pray that we would be the type of people who would respond if you did, that we wouldn't miss it. We ask these things in Christ's name.